0: no, I'm an alcoholic. I'm glad to be here tonight. So, I, um, my story started, I uh, was born in 1997 in uh, Gulf Coast, Florida. Um, came from a pretty broken household. Uh, a lot of drugs and alcohol in the home growing up. I had a lot of instability throughout my childhood. And, um, yeah, that led to me uh, taking my first drink at 12 years old. I... Um, immediately as a lot of people say and as is written in the book like I thought I had found like the solution to my uh, to my problems I felt um, like a pretty strong relief from anxiety and kind of like an escape from the world through uh, through alcohol and drugs and that um, that persisted I yeah kind of um, chased that regardless of consequences and I had I had pretty pretty immediate pretty immediate consequences to my, uh, my drug and alcohol use I um, spent a lot of time in my childhood I was um, put in the care of my grandfather as my parents were uh, unfit to parent me and I um, spent a lot of time in boys homes out west in uh, Utah growing up and um, a lot of that was um, as a result of Drug and alcohol use. So fast forward to eighteen, I was, uh, you know, thought I had it all figured out, as a lot of eighteen-year-olds do, and um, thought, all right, well, I tried it your way. Like now, I'm gonna try it my way, and I uh, was fully convinced that I did not have an issue with uh, with drugs and alcohol. I, regardless, again, I was unable to. Like I tried my hand at college went to college in salt lake city things weren't working out there because of drugs and alcohol so i transferred down to southern utah same story um started having legal consequences coming into play and um yeah that just started a cycle of me moving you know bouncing around the country staying you know this place or that um for you know eight months a year whatever burning bridges wherever i went and you know, moving on and, um, throughout all this drug and alcohol use persisted. Um, and that kind of, uh, came to a head many times, you know, I've really um, put my life in jeopardy time and time again through, um, through my alcoholism. I, uh, came to California, uh, this past February, I, again another terrible you know crisis as a result of in part due to uh, my alcoholism uh, i was living down in las vegas things weren't working out my grandparents lived here in the bay area they said hey come up here still again you know i'm 25 now so this has been going on since i was uh 12 really but it, you know as an adult you know consequences get worse and um uh, yeah, if somebody could just let me know when I'm at 10 minutes, by the way, I, uh, um, again, swore off drugs and alcohol for life last February and still couldn't, couldn't get it together. Uh, went into a sober living here in the Bay area was relapsing, got kicked out, you know, again, just kind of repeating the same cycle that has been my, uh, my life just on a smaller scale here in the Bay area. And, um, this past august i had a, a yet another relapse um after checking myself out of a rehab in san francisco had been out for six days and um just for some reason it was just i call it a moment of clarity or whatever again not speaking from an ivory tower because this was only six months ago but i am. Um, was really just disgusted with myself. Like I was completely disgusted with the, um, just the way my life had gone. Like I know I have potential and I didn't feel like I was meeting it. And I, I prayed in that, in that moment. I was in the middle of a relapse. I just prayed to God, like, please give me the strength to like, show me what to do. Like, I don't want to be like this anymore. And my higher power guided me through that situation. And, um, you know, I checked myself again. I had just left the rehab. So I checked myself out of um, or checked myself into a hotel and just got on Zoom. Like I already knew plenty about AA. I've had plenty of experience with it before. I just went to Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting for about three days where I was putting in like eight to 10 hour days on Zoom. Uh, picked up a, a white chip. Not a white chip, but one day chip at a meeting in Berkeley. And, um, you know, from there again, this was uh, August 25th this past year. And I've uh, been very early sobriety. But what has been working for me up to this point has been just like really consistent daily inventories, uh, meeting with a sponsor working the steps to the best of my ability, um, going to meetings. I've gone to meetings more or less every day since, um, since this past August. And, um, this was the first go at AA where I've truly, I've actually done the steps. Like I'd never gotten past step four before now. And, um, I was always afraid of step four. Like i like that self-assessment and like really getting honest with another like man in this program was very scary to me like sharing not just like the superficial stuff that everyone's fine with sharing but really um you know the nitty-gritty of the like uncomfortable like shameful things that i've done that i always told myself i would take with me to the grave sharing that with another person was terrifying and at the same time has been a huge relief for me and I feel has allowed me to move forward to the point that I'm at now. Um, and today I still yeah I'm just trying to go to go to daily meetings. Uh, I'm still working with my sponsor I'm on my uh, on my ninth step now and um, yeah that's that's kind of where I'm at. I think am I at my at 10 minutes get three more. Oh. Three more. Okay. Um, All right. Look, three more. Um, Yeah, it hasn't been, it hasn't been easy. Like I've, again, like I said, like I was in boys homes growing up or treatment centers or whatever you want to call it. And a lot of that was, so I've always had, like, I had a very, uh, like a lot of like AA type stuff. I saw this it it being forced down my throat from when I was 12 years old. So I was very like resistant to that. And, um, again, pretty much like I had very little success in my adult life. Like was already going to like sober livings and whatever by like 19, like complete burnout, to be honest. And, um, just kind of biting the ball <laughs> is crazy. I look back, it's completely insane because it's so obvious as it always is, that like I have problems with drugs and alcohol, but like the disease of addiction or whatever you want to call it, just kind of like overrides any like sense of logic in my mind. So um, I obviously don't have the ability to uh, to override that. The only thing that has worked again the six months is definitely the longest stretch of uh, sobriety I've ever had. So to me, it's a it's an accomplished, I don't want to call it an accomplishment, but it's something that I'm very grateful to God for, um, giving, giving and making available to me. So, uh, yeah, I'm assuming that thumbs up was, was, what was that? 10 minutes. Sir. 60 seconds. If you want to use it. No, <laughs> yeah, I'll use it. Um, yeah, I, and I'm just glad to be here today. I uh s- Secretary of meeting here in in El Sobrani every week. Uh, meet with my sponsor as much as possible. I have a service commitment, and so far those things are working for me. So I uh, hope if I you know keep keep doing what I'm doing right now and doing the best I can every day, daily inventories, all that. I hope things will continue to improve for me because I've been to some very, my addiction and my alcoholism has brought me to some very low points. I really have, as it says in the book, been at like the gates of death on more than one occasion. And I know that that's not enough to keep me sober. Like the only thing that will keep me sober is doing, you know, do, doing the steps and uh, working the program. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. Glad to be here. Thank you very much.
1: My name is Jules, and I am an alcoholic, and thank you for having me speak here. I hope somebody relates to something that I say. When I got sober, I was taught to listen for the similarities and not the differences. I love to see when people's heads nod. So if anybody can help feed my codependency need (laughs) and nod a couple of times, that would really be great. I'm just saying. So my name is Jules, and I am an alcoholic, My uh, fabulous job on your speak, Noah, I mean, when I was six months, I couldn't even lift my eyes from the floor, okay? You're doing fabulous, but it's not about how you sound, it's what I heard, the work you're doing. I didn't grow up with an easy AA, okay? I grew up with hard-ass AA people. (laughs) My sobriety date is November 2nd, 1989, and the reason why I tell you that is because the only thing I've done perfect is not drunk one day at a time. I wish I looked better in sobriety and I haven't and you'll hear that. <laughs> the good news is I can laugh at myself today. When I got sober I was suicidal. I don't do a big drunk uh, because I basically lost the ability to control and enjoy my drinking almost after the very first drink. The very first drink was perfect. It took the feelings away and that's why I drank. I didn't want to feel. I grew up in a very abusive home. The only reason why I survived is because I believe I had two loving grandparents. I believe I was the child that was gonna save the marriage, I didn't. So I had a bullseye on my back from the gate and I didn't know that. So when I was mid-teens, I experimented with alcohol. Like I said, it worked perfect. And I chased that illusion That wisp of smoke out of the air from the time I was 13 until when I got sober at 28. And it only worked right the first time. It brought me to the edge of suicide when I was 19. My first suicide attempt, I had drank all the booze in the house. I had no booze left. So I had a bottle of pills. I swallowed them. I went to sleep, hoping I would never wake up because I couldn't figure out how to live and not drink. And I couldn't figure out how to live and drink. So I swallowed the pills, went to sleep, hoping I would die. I woke up and I was deaf. I was scared to death. So I went to the ER. First of all, I called my God, which was my mother. And she said, I can't help you. That was the type of support that I had. So I went to the ER and they said, they didn't go, oh, poor baby. It's okay. They put you on a 72 hour watch when you try to kill yourself. So they put me in with the crazy people. And they gave me tips and tricks and tools and Al Franken, Saturday Night Live, stand in front of the mirror, you're worthy, you're lovable, and gosh darn it, people like you tools. And I used those and they did not work. So I reached for alcohol. My second suicide attempt came when I was 25. If you have not gotten the pattern yet, I could not figure out how to live and control and enjoy my drinking. I did what the big book talked about. I switched from scotch to brandy. I figured I wasn't a drunk because I drank top shelf liquor. I wasn't a drunk because I drank winery wines, not gallo. Okay. I got up and I went to work and I paid my rent and I didn't abuse anybody. Normal people don't think about drinking as much as I did. And I thought about it all the time. Making sure I had enough at home, enough in the car and enough wherever I was going. So my second suicide attempt came at 25. It obviously didn't work. This time I didn't tell anybody about it. And it was a very dark and very deep hole. And I dug myself out of that. My third suicide, and I added outside uh, other forms of alcohol to the mix, just to try to find that elusive perfection of, please, God, do not let me feel. And nothing worked. So I was on the verge of my third suicide attempt, and I worked with a woman in AA and a woman in NA. And for years, they'd been telling me about these fabulous meetings they would go to and how they got a big book and a 12 and 12. And they uh, had fun and they went to dances and they laughed a lot. And I'd talk about how I hit this bar and that bar and I'd ride the bowl and I'd fall off the bull. That's very 80s. I know I'm dating myself uh, and I'd go home with someone and I wouldn't know where I was when I woke up and I got stopped for DUIs, but good news, I didn't get arrested. Over and over and over. And I felt sorry for them. <laughs> so they knew I needed Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody ever shoved a big book down my throat. When I went to one of them and said, I'm desperate and I'm suicidal and I can't figure out a way to kill myself, I need your help she suggested I go to an employee assistance program at work and they gave me the 20 questions and I answered them all right and they said yes we think you're very depressed but we think you're an alcoholic and I said how can I be an alcoholic I'm only 28 years old and I get up and I go to work and I pay my bills and I'm a good person and they said but we have a solution for you we're going to send you to a rehab and I thought oh thank you god I'm so tired I was exhausted. I was carrying everything on my back. I couldn't figure out how to live. And I thought, thank God I get to rest. And they said, oh, no, you have to get up and go to work and pay off that $25,000 debt you incurred because you think taking out a credit card and buying bright and shiny things are going to make you all better. And by the way, it doesn't. It gets you in debt. Uh, And we're gonna put you in an outpatient, not an inpatient. And I thought, Jesus, I can't catch a break. I needed to rest so badly. So they sent me to the rehab and my hand hovered over the contract and I turned to my counselor and I said, what if I change my mind? Can I change my mind? And they said, no. And I could have walked out anytime I wanted. And I had no clue, I was so desperate. They put you in a circle in rehab and they go around that circle and they say, tell us how you feel. <laughs> i thought what the f are they talking about here right they got to me and i basically blurted out i have no idea what you're talking about i'm angry and i'm afraid that's what i knew and they laughed and laughed and i thought they are crazy (laughs) this rehab you know i did not get sobriety in the rehab Nothing against rehabs. Where I got sobriety is one of the requirements was you go to AA. So I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous and I got very lucky and I fell into, I love using that term, I literally fell into a group called Saturday Night Live. And they were a vibrant, ginormous, energy-filled laughter and tears and steps and service. And responsible solution oriented group. And a miracle happened. We had a podium at the front of the room. It was a little tiny schoolroom, but it was jam packed all the time. And people would get up at the podium, and the miracle that happened is they started talking about how I felt. And I still get emotional about it because I was 28 years old and I was all alone all my life. Nobody understood how I felt. Even the women at that job, we would sit and talk about AA and my drinking shenanigans. I got the solution and the message and the connectivity in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so grateful. They said, if you want what we have, do what we do. These are simple suggestions. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. Uh, We don't drink no matter what. And I believed everything they said. And I'm so grateful, I was so desperate. I had no self-esteem, I was suicidal. We had a sponsor box, I put my name in the sponsor box and somebody called me and we started working the steps because I followed direction. I wasn't taught when I got sober in 1989 that I can say no. (laughs) That's not the messages I heard in the rooms. I wasn't taught, and I'm not better than I'm telling you how I was raised in AA. So please do not take anything that I say as a uh, lecture or anything. It's just the way I was raised. I wasn't taught that relapse is part of recovery. I wasn't taught that I'm a chronic relapser. I swear to God, I was so clueless, I didn't know I could drink. I was obsessing and desperate for a drink, but you guys said, use the tools. We don't walk into Alcoholics Anonymous and they hand you a toolkit. That's not what happened for me. I had to learn how to build a toolkit and I had to learn how to put different tools in that toolkit. So I used a, a serenity prayer constantly in early sobriety. Please remove the obsession for me to drink. Over and over, I used music obsessively to get the ism to shut up. And then one day, I can't tell you how long, the obsession was lifted. 17 days into sobriety, and I don't think it was 17 days into sobriety, the, the obsession was lifted, but 17 days into sobriety, I met a hymn. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, but then I got that extra gift of meeting a him. And when I got sober, they said one in three is going to make it. That's a very high percentage now. And I remember thinking, looking at the person on my right and looking at the person on my left, thinking, "I hope you make it." Because even though I didn't have any self-esteem, something kicked in subconsciously, and I told myself, "I'm going to do everything they tell me to do." I'm desperate the only time I ever gave myself a break and I didn't know I was doing it so they said well one in three is going to make it and then they said by the way that relationship it's not going to (laughs) work and I said oh you don't know it's true love (laughs) <laughs> and you know what? It lasted for three years, and I'm grateful I had that relationship. He's still sober. He doesn't have a thing I want. No disrespect to him. He just is in it for the social. He doesn't do any work, service, anything, whatever. It doesn't matter. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. At three years sober, he decided, well, oh, I don't love her anymore, and that was fine, but I'll tell you, I thought I was going to die from the pain, And that was the beginning of my unattractive sober years (laughs) where I wished I looked better. I did not know how to feel. Even though I worked the steps, been in service, worked with my sponsor, prayed, meditated, did all the suggestions for those three years, I still did not know anything other than fear and anger. And believe me, I wanted to get rid of those emotions because they scared me. So I'd go to my sponsor and I'd cry And I'd go to meetings and I'd cry. And I'd work with my sponsees and I'd cry. But I didn't drink no matter what. No matter what. I trusted. And I can remember in those first three years, people would come to the rooms and they would be fired, Uh, relationship breakup, money problems, being evicted, losing the kids, whatever. And they stayed sober. And I remembered that. And I thought to myself, how do they do that? How do they deal with all this and not drink? And when life hit me, I did what they did. I dug in even further. I, I kept doing meetings, working the steps, trusting, blah, blah, blah. I hit a very deep depression. I was taught when I first got sober, we don't take anything no matter what. I'm not a doctor. I'm not your doctor. Even if I was, it's not my place to tell you what to do. You know, even if I was a doctor, it's not my place to tell you what to do. If you suffer from a mental illness, please seek outside help. The big book talks about it. So I now say I don't drink no matter what. Um, I came out of that depression. During that depression, by the way, one of the things that happened was my anger. I was taught anger is uh, depression is anger turned inward. And I was so angry, I didn't have any outlet for it. So what I did was I took it out on me and I blocked God. And I had been lucky enough to create a power greater than myself that was way different than the Catholic school God that I grew up with at St. Leo's on Piedmont Avenue in Oakland, California. Nothing against Catholicism, but I heard different messages in Catholic school. In Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody's ever told me my my God is wrong. I love that about this program. So I hit a, a wall of depression and I sought outside help. And uh, I, I, I was in the middle of that depression and I had lost my conception of God and it scared me to death. And I hadn't heard anybody talk at meeting level about, oh, we're going to give you this God. And then one day it may just disappear. But it happened for me. So I shared that secret because that's what I was taught, to share the secrets. We do talk at meeting level in a general way, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I don't do inventories at meeting level, but I shared this big secret. I lost my God. And members came up to me at the end of the meeting, a huge meeting that I used to go to on Sunday mornings, and they said, will you pray with me? And I'm not a holy roller, and if you are, no offense But I said, yes, because I was so desperate. And I got on my knees in front of this door in this big meeting, and there were hundreds of people going in and out. And the man said to me, I know you don't believe that you have a God anymore in your life, but I know there's a God. And I want you to hold on to that, that I believe for you. And that was from year five until about year nine. That is a long time to trust. I was afraid I was going to get struck drunk, and I didn't, and I kept working and working and working at it, working those steps over and over and trusting that one day that belief in a power greater than myself would come back, and finally around year nine, it did. My sponsor, I haven't had the kindest, softest, gentlest sponsors. I'd go to my sponsor and I'd say, oh, I'm a piece of garbage. Oh, uh, you know, nobody loves me. Oh, my mother's never going to love me. Oh, I hate my manager, Whatever. Or, you know, and and I would complain and the Irish say whinge instead of whine. And I'd complain and and I'd expect my sponsor to go, oh, poor baby. No, my sponsor would say, prove it. And I loved that I had strong sponsorship, that I wasn't coddled. And so it forced me to grow up. Um, So my sponsor said, hey, if you're not happy with your life, you better do something about it. And so when I came out of that depression, I thought, I'm almost 10 years sober. I'm lucky to be sober. I'm grateful I have God in my life again. I've got a good, strong fellowship. I work with other women. I've got a good sponsor. Um, Is this all there is, though? Like the pink cloud had kind of gone away. And so because my sponsor said, if you're not happy with your life, you better do something about it. I thought, what a great idea for me to sell everything I own and move to Dublin, Ireland. And so that's what I did. I was 38 years old, I knew nobody, I had no job, I had no money, but I had the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I flew to Dublin, Ireland, I landed there December 15th, 1999. I got a job December 23rd. I don't have any specialized skill. I'm just a worker bee, I know how to, I know how to work hard. And it was the turn of the century and I just knew it was going to work out. I had that pink cloud back. I had no clue that I was going to come back. What a gift to be 10 years sober and fall in love with Alcoholics Anonymous all over again and have that no matter what, I'm going to be okay feeling, you know, and it was such a gift. Well, a little problem happened. (laughs) I didn't know that I was going to scare them. Now, I don't know how you you see me now, but 22 years ago, I was still very shy, very insecure, very low self-esteem, but I knew I had put 10 years of good work into the program. I don't believe even now I'm disrespectful, loud, brash, whatever. But um, apparently, it's pretty scary when somebody moves from California to Ireland, What am I running from? Why would I leave this paradise to there, right? And I was 10 years sober, and I was 38, and I was single. What was I running from? Now, I didn't know they were thinking that. And so I was very lonely for a long time. They were kind enough to me at meeting level, but they weren't letting me in. Like, oh, come have a cup of tea or come to the cinema, you know? So I was very, very lonely. And I'd spent a lot of time walking. I hate I I'll, when I say this part, I always feel like I'm I'm a street walker, but I walked the streets of Dublin by myself. Uh, and it was me and God talking constantly. And so that relationship that I got back, I had to really strengthen. Now I met a priest when I was in Dublin. And you know, I still kind of had that Catholic school girl idea. And That I was 10 years sober, and I had some experience with creating a God. And so I had the ability to say that to that priest, hey, do you ever question your faith in God? And that was a scary question for me to ask, because I didn't want to be disrespectful, you know? I thought lightning was still going to come down from the sky and strike me. And he showed me he was another human being. And he said, I question my faith every day. And I love that he said that to me because that was the start of my humanness connection to God, if you can understand that. It made me understand faith without works is dead. It made me understand that. It made me realize I have to work at building that relationship with God. I have to work at building that conversation, uh, meditation, listening, praying, talking. It didn't have to be an official uh, our father who art in heaven or, you know, hail Mary full of grace. It was just having a conversation with this power greater than myself. When you guys are not around that I go to, to soothe my soul. Cause I don't know about you. I still have the ism that is never going to go away. I need to have something that will never let me down that I can go to that will soothe my brain and my soul. So I walked Dublin alone a lot. And finally, about a year after I got there, I thought, oh, what a good idea. <laughs> I'm gonna go out with a new cover. I didn't mean to. I really didn't. He loved the fellowship. I loved his love of the fellowship. I have to say the Irish brogue pulled me in, um, he didn't have his stuff together, and it just about killed me emotionally. I learned a big lesson on that one. I'm grateful he stayed sober because really the person who's going to get hurt on that really is the person who has a little bit of time, most of the time. So I stayed away from dating for a while. I went on a retreat. I was desperately lonely to talk to a woman, ladies If you don't have women friends in your life, men, if you do not have men friends in your life, you're missing out. There is nothing like same-sex conversations. We get something different. I have very good men friends, very good women friends. But having a woman friend to sit over a cup of coffee and just shoot the you-know-what with means everything. So I went on a retreat. One of my favorite memories of Ireland, I went on a retreat. And the, the meditation they did, they, it was a guided meditation. I'm not the greatest at meditation, and especially in a room full of people. And what it did was it had you remove everything, your clothes, your belongings, where you live, your political beliefs, your memories, everything, your skin, your everything, to where you were left with the essence of your spirit. And I came out of that meditation. And I liked myself for the first time in 12 years. And I had put so much work into gaining just a small amount of self-esteem. And that meditation made me realize I'm there. I had a long way to go, but I mean, I I was a lot further than where I was when I got sober. By the way, my sponsor taught me never compare yourself to anyone Other than who you were the day you walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I do today. So I got my first female friend at that retreat. And guess what? She's still one of my best friends, and she still lives in Ireland. I'm so grateful. She saved my life. And I didn't know this. She reminded me recently, I saved hers. So I was building my life in Ireland. I was showing them that I was a woman of character and integrity, and I wasn't running from anything. I was running to a life. And we can do a geographic towards something. That's a good geographic. So they were finally letting me in, and 9-11 happened. All of a sudden, the laws changed, and I was there on a work permit that had to get renewed every year. And I went knocking on every Silicon Valley company because I'm an American and I figured they're an American company. They'll hopefully hire me. Everybody was scared. You guys probably remember what it was like after 9-11. I don't know how it was here, but over there, people were scared. It was a shock what was happening. The terrorists coming, you know, I know it was around there, but what I'm saying is the whole terrorist Life was really coming to the forefront, and it was very scary. So I remember sitting in my flat in city center, Dublin, and a friend of mine who was Irish said, well, you're going to have to move back. And I'm like, you're insane. I sold everything. I'm here to stay. You guys are finally my friends. That was in October 2001. And in January 2002, I was back at SFO. And what I was taught was I can do anything I want sober. I have infinite possibilities of what I can do, but I better be willing to accept the consequences of my actions. So I was. So I started rebuilding my life. And I thought, it's, uh, by the way, it's a lot harder rebuilding your life when you're 40 something. <laughs> and when you get sober at late 20s, you know, so but I accepted the consequences of my actions. And so what I did was I just got a job and I worked 12 hour days and I kept trying to get a college degree to try to earn more money. That never happened, by the way. But um, then finally, about a year and a half after I moved back to the States, I met a him and he had a good heart. And I thought, oh, this is a great relationship. And I told him on our first date, I have 14 years sober. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope you don't have a problem. He said, no, I don't. And that was a big, fat lie. And I found out it was a big, fat lie about nine months into the relationship. And by then, I was already in hook, line, and sinker. So I had to put on my al hat, and I had to walk. I don't mean away from the relationship, but mind my own business. Hoping and praying that if there was a God working in my life, there would be a God working in his. Three years after we got together, he came home one day, and he said, tell me about the big book. And I did the Snoopy dance. You know that Snoopy dance? I did the Snoopy dance inside, thinking, oh, thank God, he's going to get sobriety. And he got sober. And then I thought, oh, he's going to work the steps. Well, he's still a good man, but he just really never worked the program. And guess what I did? I waited. And I waited. And I waited. Finally, in December 2019, he came home one day and he said he had made a decision that affected us and I couldn't live with that decision. And that relationship needed to end probably right from the gate. But I hung in there because the Irish have a saying, God loves a trier. (laughs) I was a trier because he was a good person, you know? And so by then we had four furry children. I love your cat, Patrick. We had four furry cats. They were my children. We had a shared home together. And we had 16 years of a relationship together that we had to extricate a lot of stuff on. I did not make enough money at my job to be able to afford even rent. My first thought was, ooh, not that I'm grieving the relationship, because I had grieved that years before. It was, how am I going to afford to pay rent? A little financial insecurity there. Anybody read the promises? I had. But (laughs) I had a little financial insecurity. So that was December 2019. In March of 2020, I was offered the current job I have, which pays me so much more money. For some reason, I don't know why, I have the same skills um, that I could afford my own mortgage. God has not dropped me once. He has proven to me if I do the footwork and I trust and I seek wise counsel and I don't do stupid mistakes, which I've done many in sobriety, that it always works out. We ended up selling the home. I bought a little home here in Scotts Valley. It's an affordable mortgage. The job I can do, very high stress, but it's I can do it. COVID hit. <laughs> and I had told myself, oh, I'm going to look at dating as fun. Because I never had, even in that last relationship, enough self-esteem to even think I was worthy of someone buying me a meal. It's just where I come from. And I put a lot of, I know, I, get, I got my value when I lived in Ireland. I'm just saying it's a conundrum. So I thought, oh, I'm going to look at dating as fun. And then, and then COVID hits. How are you going to date in COVID, right? So I sheltered a place, did my job, got my house together. I lost all four of my furry ones all by myself. And if anybody has pets, they become like your children. And it killed me. And my ex and I used to tell each other, at least when they pass, we'll do it together. And I had to do each one of them all by myself. And each time it killed me. But that's part of being a pet owner. They had a good life and I was a good mama. So finally, last summer, I thought, this is messed up. I'm <laughs> going a little crazy sheltered in place, right? I was double vaccinated and boosted, And I thought, I'm not stupid. But because I had come through so many things in sobriety, I realized around year 20, oh, I have a gambling problem. I better look at that, right? Oh, I like to eat food. I was 100 pounds overweight. I had to look at that. And I had to work the steps on each of these problems. So I've come through a lot, family issues, relationship, money. I've worked on each one of those problems. I'm not, you know, completely past them. I work on reining them in every day, but anyway, so I, I, because I was hundred pounds overweight, I had blood clots in my lungs in 2018 and I had, I was in the ER and I thought I was going to die. And I thought I did not get sober to die. So I lost the weight, did the work, lost the weight, but because uh, I have a lung condition, I'm careful about COVID is my point. So last summer I was going a little crazy, (laughs) sheltered in place. And I thought, you know what? I'm double vaccinated. I'm boosted. I'm going to mask. I'm going to sanitize. I'm going to go back over to Europe because I missed it terribly. And the wonder of Zoom. I met so many wonderful new people on Zoom who said, hey, come on over. (laughs) And I'm like, really? (laughs) So I did. I flew over to London And I stayed with a friend for five weeks. And I met all these other fabulous people that I had met on Zoom. And they were just like who they said they were on Zoom. So I had that little adventure. I came back and I thought to myself, I don't live in a hellhole. Scotts Valley is a beautiful little town. I landed okay. All right. But I'm not filled, if that makes sense. So a friend of mine who lives in London in October called me up and said, hey, do you want to spend the end of the year uh, um, in London? And I'm like, do I? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I went over to London and I got to stay there for a couple of weeks. And what I really wanted, I really wanted to go back to Ireland. Because I missed it so much. My ex didn't like that part of the world. And you know, when you're in a relationship, you compromise. And I gave that up. So... I landed in Dublin, Ireland, December 16th of 2021. I met my old friends. I met new friends. I drove all around the country. I worked at the same time. And guess what I realized? Ireland is my home. I've been holding my breath, settling in that last relationship, compromising, which we do. And I wasn't, you know, completely unhappy, but I wasn't filled. They have the fellowship in Ireland, and I'm not going to save the world. That's not what I mean by this, but we are so lucky here. We have such a strong AA program in the States. They don't have it that strong there. In the two months I was there, I visibly made a difference because my job, As a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous, is to go up to someone, a woman, in the rooms, and you can tell. Day one, scared to death, how do I live and not drink? And I did it over and over and over. Women were not doing that to other women there. And that scared me. And I had heard that from my friends. And I thought, oh, come on, you're just saying that. No, it's true. It's COVID, it's age, it's society, culture, a bunch of different things. So I met a whole bunch of wonderful people there. New Year's Eve, out of the blue, I got an invite to go to County Mayo, which is on the west coast of Ireland, and hear bagpipers. Stuff like that didn't happen when I was drinking. Just out of the blue. Someone else, I went to go get some stuff fixed for my phone. I went into a shop and my screensaver is my coin. And the man uh, was having a problem connecting my phone. And I said, oh, come on, Mr. IT guy, I believe in miracles. I know you can do this for me. And he looked at me and he said, I believe in miracles too, 12 of them. And I said, oh, I didn't know you were a friend of Bill W., and he said, yes, I am. But I made a big mistake a couple of days ago. And I did the spiel, which is authentic. Nothing is irreparable. We can, you know, make amends, blah, blah, blah. I go to a meeting that night, invited him to come because I knew some good men were going to be at the meeting. And he said, oh, no, I'm not going to go. And I said, OK, good luck to you. I go to that meeting. Guess who walks in? The IT guy. And he said, my name is so-and-so. I'm two days sober. And I'm desperate. (laughs) Stuff like that just doesn't happen. And my Irish friends are like, do you go around with like a placard that says AA here? (laughs) And they're like, I'm from here. And that's never happened to me. So to me, I had all these little coincidences, all these little God winks, all these little things that told me my soul was being fed. I felt so comfortable. Um, I slotted right in is what they said so guess where I'm moving (laughs) I'm moving back I just heard on Thursday my job is willing to pay me to work over there (laughs) I mean that's gonna save my life I was willing to go and scrape by So I'm going to be smart, and I'm going to hold on to this as an investment and rent it out. When I get my dual citizenship, I'm going to sell this house and base myself over there. These are the types of gifts that we get in sobriety. I know my purpose lies there. I want to talk the last four minutes about my family. I struggled wanting them to love me so desperately for so long. And my sponsor would tell me, you know, when you're a kid and you learn actions speak louder than words, your family has been screaming at you with their actions that they don't want you in their life. And I would say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And finally, it took me 20 years of sobriety to walk away from my family. And I did. Because I was tired of hurting myself. (sighs) In 2014, I got a call and it was my cousin who said my mom had stage four lung cancer for the past nine months. And she told everybody in the family not to tell you because that was my punishment because I walked away from the family and now she's dead. And I told him, I'm really grateful that you told me. Because I often wondered if she was okay, because I knew she hadn't taken care of herself. But I couldn't keep hurting myself. So I was offered to go to her service up in Burlingame. And I was afraid to go because I still had given my family the power to hurt me. And that was at 25 years sober at that time. But I went up there with my then boyfriend and a sponsee, and we went up there. And I had had years when I was going to tell the world. At her eulogy, what a shitty mother she was. That's what I was going to say. But at this time, I had done the resentment for for years. It took me years of praying to forgive her for what she had done to me growing up and as an adult. So I get up to the church and the priest said, does anyone want to speak? And I thought, I can't believe I'm being given this opportunity. And I had no clue what I was going to say. And I got up on the altar and I said, I'm Martha's youngest daughter. And it's unfortunate that we didn't get to see each other in the last years of her life, but she made a decision and I made a decision and I don't regret my decision. I often told her what a good mother she was because she gave me morals and values and a roof over my head and food to eat. I hope she's not in pain any longer. I hope she's with people that we love that have passed on. I was a good daughter to her and I loved her and I sat down. Now I have to tell you, that was not the woman that walked into Alcoholics Anonymous on November 2nd, 1989. That was the woman who got there from doing the work, reaching for the the freedom, releasing her renting space, rent free up here. I did not get sober to have my life suck. I did not get sober to be held prisoner by food, alcohol, or or not drug, food, sex, gambling, work, exercise, men, money, anything. So I work on just discarding these prisons that appear to me every day. I think my God has a great sense of humor. He doesn't let me rest. And that's okay. I continue to be a student sitting in my chair at 28 seconds. I'm sorry. I did 40 minutes on there. I hope I'm, I'm not difference on your time. I sit in my chair every day in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm still willing to learn. I'm still willing to go to any lengths, more so now than I was when I first got sober because I'm greedy. I know what I'm going to get if I do the work. Thank you for listening. I hope you got something from my share. I really appreciate your um, inviting me here to this meeting. Thank you so much.